This is the last story in the Bible, uh, in the Gospels, about the life of Jesus. So this is going to be from John chapter 21. So John 20 ends with two verses that wrap things up pretty nicely for the book of John. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. By the way, if you're watching The Chosen on, um, what's that on? VidAngel. Uh, if you're not, you should be. Uh, they, they fill in the story creatively with other ways in which Jesus might have done that. It's VidAngel, it's vid so it's not scripture, but it really kind of fleshes out biblical narrative ideas. It's a very... A uh, very thought-provoking and very well-done show. Okay, back to your regularly scheduled programming. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's the end of John 20, and that seems like a great place to wrap up the book. But then there's John 21. And in John 21, Peter is singled out in a, in a story that's not entirely flattering about Peter and yet at the same time profoundly hopeful. So it's presented here as a small story within a much bigger story. It's very raw. It's very bare as we'll see as we unpack this. It's not like the end of the Lord of the Rings where everyone's kind of glowing softly and they're hugging and crying and beautiful ships sail off into a horizon. This is not how the Gospel of John wraps up. But it wraps up in a way that is profound and I think um, life-changing if we see it honestly. So why is John wrapped up this way? What do we learn about Jesus is the key question, and then why does that matter to us? So let's keep reading. We're going to start with John 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter, and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana of Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. So first thing to note, there's seven disciples there. Four of them are mentioned generally, but only three of them are mentioned by name, and that's Peter, and Thomas, and Nathanael. I think this is significant for this reason. Peter had betrayed Jesus. The Thomas here is the infamous doubting Thomas, and Nathaniel's the guy who had once said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? All three of these guys had some, some failures. They had expressed doubts, disillusionments, you name it. it. It wasn't a stellar track record, and the things that they said or the way they reacted to Jesus. And yet all three had offered a clear confession of faith, and you could see this different places in Scripture, and if you see my notes online, you'll find the references to go there. And then all three had their confession of faith followed by Jesus then expressing his own doubts about the depth of their commitment. Or maybe a better way to say that is Jesus challenging their depth of commitment. Like they said, Lord, we're in. And they were like, I don't know about this. And then Jesus calls them on it. So I think the fact that those three are signaled out and those three have that in common is probably giving us a hint that this chapter will have to do something with this theme. It's people of faith who wrestle with doubt or fear or disillusionment. So let's just keep reading. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll come with you. So they went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. 
Yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. Uh, remember, it was last week we were talking about Road to Emmaus where people's eyes were kind of hidden, so they didn't recognize Jesus. I don't know if that's what's happening here, but it would be consistent with what Jesus had done before as he initially presented himself to people. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. So they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. By the way, excuse me, I got a cough. This is very similar to the story told in Luke 5. Very similar. You have to wonder if some wheels were kind of starting to churn, like, this has happened before. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging a net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. Somebody took the time to count them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you? Knowing it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. Another interesting similarity to the Emmaus Road story, when they realize it's him, he's giving bread. Coincidence? I think not. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. All right, so let's unpack the story. First of all, we have darkness and that daybreak is the setting of the story. This is symbolism in the Bible that is used consistently from Genesis through Revelation. Night represents the downtime, the chaos of life. So Peter denied Jesus in the dark right before daybreak. Peter went to the tomb, the Bible says, while it was still dark. And now here's Peter fishing in the dark, and he's failing to follow Christ yet again. And he actually took his friends with him this time. So this is the last chapter of John, right? John in the first chapter writes this of Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And now, in John 21, the story begins in the darkness, and as daybreak comes, uh, as John says here, morning was now coming to be. So there's something new and beautiful dawning, and you see this conveyed even in the imagery that's happening in the story. This is also the same sea in which Peter had tried to walk and failed. 
And if you notice while we're reading this, he didn't even try this time. The, the Bible says he just threw himself into the water. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe he's not going to try to test his faith after what happened when he denied Jesus. Like, maybe better just to present yourself as if you're going to sink than to give it a shot and just go feet first like you were expecting. I don't know. But note, Peter's enthusiasm is still there, um, even if his hopeful optimism isn't. The account says that Peter pulled the whole net in, like all of his buddies in the boat are dragging this net in barely, and then the Bible singles Peter out as going in, and it was a hundred and however many fish, dragging the whole thing all by himself. Yeah, his enthusiasm is there. I can't say that word. His enthusiasm is there. Uh, he's, he's pumped. He's excited to see Jesus. But then also, three times before the crucifixion, while he was hiding in the darkness, he's huddled around a charcoal fire, and he says, um, I don't know him. He denies that he loves Jesus more than anything else. And now, three times, now in the light of morning, not of the darkness, once again huddled around a fire by a sea that represents his former failure of lack of faith when he couldn't walk on the water for long. As the day is dawning, he's offered redemption. So Jesus says, do you love me? The first and second time, Peter responds with, Lord, you know I love you. And if you look at the language, he's, re he's referring to knowledge at an everyday level. It's like knowledge based on, you've seen what, I, what I'm doing, so I'm going to give an Anthony translation of, Lord, I know, I, you know I love you here. Lord, you know all the things. You've seen my love. I was the first one called to follow you. I was the first one named apostle. Apostle, remember that fish thing? You did that for me to start this thing. You saw me jump out of a boat into seas that frightened me. You saw me cut a dude's ear off when you were arrested. I ran to the tomb when you were alive. You even nicknamed me the rock, right? You've seen how impressive my love is. But the third time, Peter shifts to a word that means experiential knowledge. This is now more like, Lord, you, um, you perceive all things. You've also experienced my life. We know each other. You've been around me. You've experienced my love. So I read a bunch of commentaries on this because commentators are curious. Is Peter offended? Is he defensive? Is he exasperated? Is he embarrassed? I mean, he's right there in front of his friends. Is he confused because he thought he answered the question and now he's just experimenting with different words? Now, now here's my sense, and this is just my sense, is that his last response is more of a statement of resignation. Like, Jesus isn't letting Peter avoid reality. Like the first two times, Peter chose a word that would put him in a good light, and Jesus keeps pushing, and Peter knows where he's going with this. So if I can paraphrase once again, what I, what I think is captured in that last, you know I love you, it's something like this. Uh, and actually, this is kind of more what Jesus is saying to Peter. Peter, I'm not asking if you're excited about me. Of course you're excited about me. I'm not asking how impressive you are and your emotional outpourings and your impulsive decisions and your ability to say what you think. You're clearly excited about me. You just pulled that whole net in. I'm asking you something different. I'm asking you if you love me. I'm asking you if you'll take up your cross and follow me in spite of the danger, in spite of the opinions of others, in spite of your uncertainty and doubt. I do know you, and what I know is that last time you didn't. That's why I'm asking you again, do you love me? 
do you love me in the sense that you are willing to give me your life? Do you love me? And Peter's response, and I, I think this is what's loaded into his response, is, uh, yeah, you do know me, don't you? But Peter doesn't give up. He continues to insist, but, but you know that I love you. So I was trying to think of ways in which we might experience something like this. And so I use my wife and I for examples a lot. So here we go again, babe. If you ever have a conversation with, with someone like your spouse, but it could be a, a really good friend or a family member or someone, when your relationship's at its worst and you know that you have done or said things that give the other person reason to push you away or, uh, yeah, reason to push you away to what distance. And then you finally see yourself as the kind of spouse or friend or parent or child that you really are. And you realize, um, I had convinced myself that I was loving them well because I was loving them like on my terms. So I wanted to love them and by my particular standard, but I the problem was I ignored a bunch of these things that clearly weren't loving, and now you're in this situation where the person you're talking to and says, no, you can't just see those things you want to see about yourself. You've got to see the whole picture. And you say that you love me, and I get it. These things do it, but do you see this? And, and I think, I'll speak for myself, what I've had to fall back on at those times is to go, okay, you do know me, but I, but I love you. But I keep coming back to that. I really do love you. I have nothing else to say. I'm not good at it sometimes. I know I'll let you down. I know I'll hurt you because if I didn't know it before, it's clear now that I let you down and I hurt you. I get it, but, but yet you know that I love you, Right? And often those conversations are hard, difficult conversations because you wrestle with this at times. Like, and I'll just speak for my wife and I again. My wife knows I love her. Uh, I mean, she knows that. But often what I have to offer um, my presence isn't always loving like it should be. And yet she knows I, I love her. I know that she loves me even when the reverse is true. Like sometimes the conversations gets, get to that point. Ah, Okay, I get it. I bring two fistfuls of problems, but, but you know that I love you. So if I'm understanding this correctly, I think Peter is saying in essence, Jesus, you've experienced, I'm cowardly, I'm impulsive, I'm self-centered, and I'm doubting, but you've also experienced that I love you. I do. So then Jesus says to Peter, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God, and that would be crucifixion eventually. And when Jesus had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. Oh, man. So Peter says, Okay, right, Jesus, all those things you said about me are true. You know me, but you also know I love you. And Jesus says, okay, all right, you'll die for me. 
will you still follow me? In John 13, so earlier in this book, Jesus had said to Peter at one point, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. But now, he says, now, where I'm going, you can't follow me. In effect, Peter will do this so effectively that he's able to lead the church, and then he'll die, and then John records that this will be a sign, and that, that specific word, it's worth noting, John does not use the word miracle for anything that Jesus does when he writes his gospel. He uses the word sign every time. It's always a sign, and the purpose of signs are to promote trust and belief in Christ. So Peter's death is going to glorify God and be a sign to promote trust in Christ. It turns out chapter 21 is a victory song. After the start to chapter 21, where it seems as if Peter is ushered into the limelight, where everyone's reminded, including all of his buddies who were there, hey, Peter, three times, we got to do this. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yike. Right. So it starts out like, what is going on? But you realize at the end, what Jesus is saying to Peter is, you were once someone who could not follow me where I was going. But now I'm offering you an opportunity. Do you want to follow me where I'm going now? And before, I might not have told you where it will lead you, and now I'm telling you where it will lead you. You will one day die on my behalf. Do you want to follow me now? Do you love me? And I think we're shown here through Peter that our shortcomings and our failures Christ can forgive them and redeem them. And then in fact, Jesus wants us broken and imperfect people to follow him and build his kingdom anyway. So here's where I think Peter in some ways represents all of us in this story. Peter, who was afraid of servant girls around campfires, will preach to the masses in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell like fire. Peter, who cut off a man's ear, will heal a man crippled from birth. Peter, who was a coward, will be called by the Apostle Paul a pillar of the church. For nine months in absolute darkness, the Peter who denied Christ out of fear of the fallout will endure monstrous torture, manacled to a post, and while he's there, he will convert the jailer and 47 others. Peter, who once rebuked Jesus for saying the Messiah would need to suffer, He'll be crucified upside down, and if tradition is correct, he'll speak words of comfort to his wife as she goes to her death. So I think Peter's death will be a sign to show all of us that our history does not have to be our destiny. Mourning is now coming because the light of the world has come. William Loder kind of summarizes this story like this. The world and the church are littered with smashed lives and vessels ground beneath vengeful judging feet. Cross the line of shame, we think, and there's no way back. Not so because of Easter. The veil of death is parted. Through it, a hand reaches out to Peter, shamed and probably resigned to former routines. You saw he'd gone back to fishing. Wherever and however it happened, Peter was turned from death to life. The God who had not abandoned Christ in death would not abandon Peter in his. Against all odds, God proposed to love Peter again. Yes, he will follow as once he declared he would. We are called from that night where Peter, giving up and back in his old life, fishing in the dark, could catch nothing. 
Now, as the light dawns on us, resurrection means we're able to receive the love God proposes to us. So what do I learn about Jesus? Three things. He calls those, well, this is the first one. He calls those of us hiding in the darkness into the light. I think it's fair to say that we all have a history in which there is something that we're ashamed. It's been that way since Peter. We didn't deny Christ in the courtyard of a palace, but we've denied him with our TVs and our computers and our budgets and our priorities and our dating and our marriages and our family dynamics and our addictions and our words and our attitudes. We might not have done it as publicly and said it as directly as Peter did, but we all have things in our past we have denied Christ. And that Jesus meets us in that darkness and he calls us into the light of his truth and his grace and his healing. There's not room in the kingdom of God for shame. The kingdom of God is full of second chances. Our history is not our destiny. Number two, he will make us face the deeds that we've done in the darkness. So it's easy to put on masks to people around us. Um, and if we're good at it, people can't see through them, but Jesus sees through them. I mean, anybody can come to church and talk it up, right? You can oppress people. It's relatively easy if you know how to do it. We might even believe our own PR campaigns and start to think, uh, Jesus is lucky to have me. I offer a lot for the kingdom of God. But Jesus knows us. Right? He, he asks us, this is, do you love me? I think he asks us, do you love me? Until we get to the point, Peter was at that third time, where we finally, finally set down the defenses and the mass, and we go, okay, Lord, you, you, uh, you know me. You know me. You, you know I love you, but you also, you know me. But the thing is, Jesus isn't interested in our strengths. The Bible is clear it's in our weaknesses that he is strong. David says that God desires a broken and repentant spirit. If we want to follow Christ, we want to truly make an impact in his kingdom, we must be willing to be broken. We have to be willing to have those deeds done in darkness, brought into the light. And I think, first of all, this starts with inside. The willingness to allow God's spirit and his word to reveal in ourselves what it is uh, that is still unsurrendered or broken or sinful within us. It starts with interior honesty. But then the second thing, and I think this is an important thing in the story, uh, God might make this happen in front of other people. In fact, I'm pretty sure eventually he will make it happen in front of other people. Jesus didn't pull Peter aside from what we could say. And while the other six disciples were over by the fire eating fish, says to Jesus, Peter, real quietly, leans up, whispers in his ear, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, you know I love you. I don't think it played out like that. Like, in front of everybody... And I don't know if Jesus asked this three times in a row or not. It, this might have taken place over the course of an hour. I don't know. Every once in a while, Jesus looks at Peter and goes, hey, back to what we were talking about. Do you love me? Uh, but it was in front of all the other people. And why not? They all knew Peter's failure. Right? I don't think this is an accident. This is part of the story. I think God has designed his kingdom so that we do life in Christ with others. This is how testimonies work. 
right? My, my testimony it only has impact for the kingdom of God when it's done in front of others, but I think it, it also has its greatest impact when it's done in front of others who know me, because then they've experienced the journey together. I think this is a big part of Scripture that we probably don't talk about enough, is that we are called to live our lives in the light. So that's for one, once again, surrendering ourselves to the light of God's truth, the work of His Spirit in us, and asking God to help us be honest before Him so the light shines in the darkness of our hearts and our minds and our souls, right? But I think the other part that is almost inseparable from this is doing this with others and letting others be part of this experience and watching the light shine on you. Maybe God even uses them to shine the light on you, but there's something important in recognizing that as God makes us face the deeds we did in darkness, it will probably not only be before God, it will be before God's people also in some fashion. I don't mean everybody has to get up here and give a testimony to hundreds or thousands. It might be two close friends but there will be light in community. And then finally, I see that Jesus will empower us to follow him and build his kingdom. I really think the last chapter of John is meant to be an encouragement to the church and to Christians because once again, history is not destiny when Jesus enters the story. And what I find fascinating is that when we talk about the Christian life and we talk about ways in which we um, could fail God, Usually the biggest one we come up with is if we deny Christ. So we look at what's happening in different places around the world where Christians are genuinely giving their life and sometimes dying in horrible ways. And we look at those stories and we would say, if somebody in that situation denies Christ so that they can save their life, I think we would look at them with great disdain, like, how dare you do that? That's the biggest failure ever. And yet, to wrap up the last gospel, the last story of the last gospel, Jesus takes Peter, who of all the disciples, it's recorded at least most publicly that he denied Jesus to save his own skin. And Jesus does not treat him with disdain. Jesus singles him out and pulls him close and says, actually, Peter, you have a special role in my kingdom. What? Really? The biggest loser is going to have that kind of role? I mean, I even wonder how the other disciples processed it. Like, seriously? We didn't deny you. He's the one who denied you. And that doesn't phase Jesus because our history isn't our destiny. Because Jesus is really good at redeeming broken things. And I don't know where you are in your life. But if that kind of ultimate sin, Jesus will redeem, and then actually use the person redeemed as a sign, as a sign of the glory of God, that listen, that's good news for all of us. It's good news for all of us. No matter what deeds were done in darkness, the light shows up. He brings us into the light. And in that light, he saves and he redeems and he heals.